0: Can we still be friends? It's not a question of Jesus, it's actually a, a question of mine, and I think it's a question we might need to revisit after going through this passage today. Because we're going to be going through some tough stuff. Matthew chapter 23, it's a, a passage of Scripture that I don't think any pastor or teacher in their right mind would ever choose to go through. but. Hey, it's me, and these are the words of Jesus. And I don't think it's fitting or right that we should avoid or pretend like they're not there or that they don't apply to us. I think that would just be ridiculous. You know, maybe you uh, grew up with siblings, or you went to school, or you had a job where someone is just getting chewed out, and like they totally deserve it too. And uh, they stand there, barely able to stand, being blown away by the dragon-like fireball of wrath from your mom or your geometry teacher or uh, your boss at Jiffy Lube. And they, they stand there experiencing the full force of rage. I mean, their clothes and hair are singed. They smell like smoke. <laughs> and it's like, you just stand there watching it all soaking it all in you're just a a fly on the wall with a grin like a jack-o-lantern because I mean this is drama somebody get me some some popcorn but inside there's that tiny minuscule microscopic sliver of remorse or sympathy for the the person the the victim or rather the recipient of the rage but it's so far outweighed by the uh The justice of what goes around comes around. Like, this is what happens when you act like a fill-in-the-blank. And it's all fun and games. You know, what goes around comes around, satisfied at the justice being carried out before you. It's all fun and games until what goes around comes around goes around and comes around to you like laser beams the eyes of your mom or your geometry teacher or your boss at Jiffy Lube they they track across the land until they they land on you target acquired and I always figured that you know when this happened to me I always looked like a like a gentle dove or an innocent fluffy lamb or like a golden retriever puppy but It's hardly the case. And as we'll see in the text today, it sure ain't. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Yep, that's our our question of Jesus. So let's get to it. Matthew chapter 23 verse 1 says, "Then We're talking about after Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. This is before His death, after He spent like one plus chapter engaging in conversation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. I mean, that's a nice way to put it. These people dearly loved God and were very passionate about the law, but I can imagine them standing there hearing this remark and really feeling good about themselves, like a cheesy smile across their faces, fluffing their robes, making sure they're they're motioning themselves so everyone in the crowd can see who it is that Jesus is mentioning. And then Jesus continues, so practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example like "Woo!" shots fired there for they don't practice what they teach now that takes some nerve to say something like that if you were jesus especially in jerusalem but what is jesus actually saying here i think it's important to know that since most of the population at this point in time they couldn't read very well and they certainly didn't own their own copies of the scriptures and so they depended upon the religious leaders to tell them what the law says. And Jesus is here saying, follow what they're saying. Follow what they're saying because it's straight up scripture, but don't follow the way they live because they don't apply it. Verse 4 says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Like they're the idea of faithfulness is just to add more and more regulations, a heavier yoke, an unbearable burden impossible to accomplish or to live by. Now it's totally the opposite you know, of, of what Jesus understands the law to be, which is easy to bear. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's all in the simple terms of loving God and neighbor. But this is what he says in verse 5a. Everything they do is for show. Now, come on, Jesus. Like, the marriage counselor said we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't use absolutes like that. Like, every time she always does this. Or he always acts like that. But this is Jesus speaking. And it's like, he knows what's up. Everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. These are called phylacteries, leather boxes that contained passages of the Old Testament. They would be attached to their arms or their foreheads. And now the practice of wearing them it gets drawn from an ultra strict, very literal interpretation of uh, Deuteronomy and, and Exodus. But what these are are doing here, these double XL editions, as Jesus said, they are extra wide prayer boxes. They aren't they aren't just normal prayer boxes, but this ultra strict reading of Exodus thirteen and Deuteronomy six, the extra wide prayer boxes. They're enlarging them. These dudes made them so big that everyone would be able to notice. That everyone would be sure to notice the double XL holiness apparently attached to them. And even beyond the double XL arm boxes, Jesus says in verse five B, And they wear robes with extra long tassels. So in addition to the double XL prayer boxes, they had double XL tassels too. Apparently to these dudes size size mattered like sure it's something that God commanded his people to wear on the four corners of their outer garments as a reminder of their holy and royal calling and sure all the the male Jews wore tassels Jesus included but these religious dudes had a practice of sporting double XL tassels to imply their double XL piety all in the hopes of attracting the admiration of the people, like everything they do is for show. Now this all might kind of sound irrelevant to our culture today, you know, arm boxes and tassels. What's the modern equivalent? I don't know, maybe like a a lifted truck, you know, that only gets eight miles to the gallon and costs hundreds of dollars in registration fees, or or maybe like 365,000 followers on Instagram whose every like, is a boost to your waning ego or maybe it's your kid playing for the top soccer club in the community but he actually just plays left bench. I mean okay, well that all that stuff is outside of the church stuff and sure it permeates its way into the church but sometimes I feel like we we tend to lift ourselves up instead of lifting Jesus up. And we do so by church affiliation, or choosing to serve, or choosing not to serve, choosing to give or not to give. It might not be boxes on your arms, or tassels on your shirt, or fancy trucks with a lift kit, or a soccer club sticker on the rear bumper that's actually just a status symbol. It could involve anything from missions trips, to education, to leading a ministry, to speaking on stage. Verse six says, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. These religious leaders are clearly concerned with something very strange and foreign to our context, prestige and, uh, and status. I mean, like who in our day is motivated by such things so, so vain and flighty, something so intangible and meaningless, stupid, right? They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. They, they love the perks of respect that come with the job. But nowadays, for, for me, it's like the last thing I want to reveal. I was up fishing in Alaska a couple weeks ago and uh, the question always comes up, like, so what do you do? And to say like, yeah, I'm a I'm a pastor. It's like the last thing I want to say. I'll be like, "Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a pastor." Because what happens is the whole context of the conversation, it changes. It gets awkward. Like I get awkward or they get awkward, but you know what always seems to happen? Someone always apologizes. They say, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, you know, for cussing so much." Yeah, like me too. Verse 8 says, Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. I must admit, I, I do love it, though, when people call me Father Jeremy or Reverend Jeremy or Minister. It just shows me, like, you haven't been to our church. And don't let anyone call you teacher— For you only have one teacher, the Messiah. So, uh, what's wrong with honoring someone with the title rabbi or teacher or father? Well, first of all, like Jesus isn't anti Father's Day, but let's break this down a little bit. Rabbi is a Hebrew term that means my great one or master, and it's used as a title of honor. For legal experts in the Jewish religious tradition. And father is sometimes used as a title of honor for great teachers. And teacher is, well, you know, a teacher, someone who instructs. But Jesus is instructing his followers and the crowds not to use such titles for each other, since they're all siblings. No one with more status than the other. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is called rabbi only twice, both times. By Judas, his betrayer. And so I think the whole point though of all of this, if it's confusing, all of it gets summed up in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And man, I like that. Like I really do sounds great. Like I mean, hypothetically speaking, like it would be wonderful to see that in practice. Like someone should really run with that. But just imagine the impact on our families and friends and strangers. Imagine the impact on the outlook of our lives, the motivations that drive us, the pursuits we engage in. Uh, imagine what the impact might be if we were to be the greatest. And by greatest, I mean servant. To serve instead of sinking into the quicksand of our vain motivations and flighty pursuits, the intangible and meaningless attempts at prestige and status. What if being servant means being greatest and being humble means being exalted? You may say, well, that's totally countercultural. That's totally not the way the world works. That's totally the opposite of everything. Yep. If you ever grew up with siblings or you went to school or had a a job where someone was just getting chewed out, it's all fun and games until the what goes around comes around goes around and comes around to you. You know, you've got that sinking pit in your stomach, the blood rushing to your cheeks, the sweat percolating through every pore. The laser beam eyes on you, target acquired. And despite all your papier-mâché defenses, all your, your flimsy protests, it's like you know, deep down, the truth. And they say sometimes the truth hurts, but I think Mark Twain said it best, that the truth hurts, but silence kills. So maybe that's why Jesus is pulling back the covers, why He's peeling back our skin and exposing the issues we need to address because He loves us enough. Some of us might actually not like this Jesus we hear from in Matthew 23 because we realize He's not just talking about some first century religious leaders. He's talking about me or what can be applied to me. Some of us might not like this Jesus we hear from in Matthew 23 because we realize it doesn't fit with our theology. Like we've been serving a Jiminy Cricket God, or Santa God, or good news only God, a lamb without the lion. But Jesus isn't nice. He's good. He's not safe. He's good. He's not wavering. He's good. He's demanding, expecting, challenging, directing like He should be. And in that very same breath, He is the definition of love and He is the definition of good. So maybe our theology needs some adjusting and our lives need reshaping. Verse 13 continues, What sorrow awaits you? And maybe you've read it before, like, woe to you, but the expression is like an emotional outburst associated with pain or, or bad news, and there's seven of these in our passage, so buckle up. What sorrow awaits you, or woe to you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, maybe even you pastors and people who have journeyed the church, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves. And you don't let others in either. Your religious actions of faith are preventing others from faith. And now I always think it's interesting to consider, are we as the church helping or hurting society? Like, are we creating greater division and animosity by pesky Facebook bantering about the most recent political drama? Or are we truly committed to the kingdom of heaven and bringing everyone in, warts and all? And now as we we move on to verse 15, we realize verse 14 is missing. It's lacking in the most significant manuscripts. It seems to be like a later edition that talks about the religious leaders being called out for devouring the property of of widows and then praying extra long prayers like ain't nobody got time for that especially because you're just rambling bro but but if the lack of verse 14 in our text today puts a dent in your faith or is traumatic for your ocd just realize verse numbers weren't added until 1551 some 470 years ago so they weren't original and it's no biggie But what is biggie is, verse 15, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. (laughs) Wow, like that's a moment I wish I could be a fly on the wall for. But then I realize this also applies to me. And man, when I think about our missionary efforts, short-term, long-term missions, whatever, what good is it if our way of life on mission does not equal our way of life at home? And what good is it if our way of life at home does not equal our way of life on mission? It's hypocritical. And what a terrible example and testimony for the convert, like follow me as i sink into the quicksand of my vain motivations and flighty pursuits the intangible and meaningless attempts at prestige and status yeah on mission i said it was all about jesus but you know clearly as you see here and now it's all about me and so the convert ends up worse off by my example and by my lousy testimony it's not cool so much so that jesus he he charges the religious leaders with turning the converts into twice The child of hell, or Gehenna, says the Greek, that you yourselves are. Gehenna is the Greek form of Gehenom in Hebrew or the Valley of Hinnom in English. It's a ravine immediately south of Jerusalem, where in the past some of the kings of Judah participated in idol worship and even child sacrifice. It later become, it became a, a trash dump where the perpetual fire burned. And by the first century, it was used metaphorically as a picture of the fiery end times judgment of God. Verse 16 says, Blind guides what sorrow awaits you. And what, what a shocker of a phrase right there. Blind guides, like sightless, unable to see guides, leading the people who knows where, clearly into confusion, like this bit right here. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind! For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gifts, gifts sacred? I, I, I don't know, though, but you know, in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, opening scene... It's all about the gold of the temple. The sacred gold figurine that Indy snatches from the booby-trapped temple in Peru. Like, who gives a rip about the temple? But the temple of Jerusalem? Totally different story. No booby traps or blow darts or bone-smashing boulders. just the living God. When you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. And I think that's why Jesus just says in Matthew 5, like, just don't swear. Like, it's best not to make oaths, whatever. Because all these evasive oaths, they amounted to lying in Jesus' book. His point is that people should just tell the truth, even if it hurts. Because silence kills. And you know, so can money. Verse 23, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Literally, the the Greek says, from from your mint, your dill, and your cumin. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, I'll read that again. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, there it is again, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat. So you've got like a state-of-the-art water softener system, reverse osmosis, cleaning your, your water 10 times over, but you swallow a camel. It's all hypocrisy. You're swallowing a camel, but I think there's actually more to do with this than water softeners and fine dining on camel meat. Both the the gnat and the camel are unclean in the Jewish food law system, and they're not to be eaten, even though it's high in protein and low in cholesterol, the the camel that is. But, But this scenario, what it does is it illustrates their concern for the small things to the neglect of the large things. Verse 25 says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self indulgence. The first message that I ever gave. Um, was on this passage. And I I wish I still had it, but the IBM laptop, uh, the size of a 2x4, as weighty as a a cinder block, it was stolen from my pimped-out 1997 Forest Green Honda Accord DX Edition in the Target parking lot, circa 2008. But in this sermon, I remember using a cup, uh, not a translucent cup, you couldn't see through it, it was a solid cup and I filled the inside with all this nastiness, you know, dirt and mold, spiders, and you know, probably like a lizard carcass too. And uh, I had a can of Pepsi and I'm in youth group, so they're easy to bait. I'm like, who wants a soda? And there's this kid named Levi, he runs up to the stage and I said, all right, so you're gonna chug this soda. He was so stoked to just guzzle down this can of high fructose corn syrup and uh, before I, before I poured it into the cup, I asked him, hey man, like, do you want to check the cup that I'm going to pour this into? It's amazing just how, how much uh, people might trust you. And uh, he's like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, look in the cup. And so I show him what's inside of the cup and he just about decked me. He almost threw up in his mouth, probably did throw up in his mouth too. But for some reason, I remember this illustration, how this cup, how it represents our lives. Like verse 26 says, you blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside. Like today, you know, an engraved slab that uh, is someone's name. It's it goes for about, on average, $2,000. It has a picture of so-and-so on it with a rose or a cross or, or whatever etched into the stone, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. He's talking about body decomposition. Especially in a, a religious culture where they don't, uh, they don't cremate and they also they don't embalm their dead. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're just hypocrites, a term usually understood in the ancient Near East as a play actor or someone on stage. People who pretend to be one thing on the outside, but that they are, are completely quite different on the end. Ironically, though, they're their failure to understand and to apply the law correctly, it made them lawless. Anomia in the Greek. Uh, lawless or, or wicked, as, as we will see. Because anomia is a general term in Greek for wickedness in the New Testament. And so what Jesus is doing, he's implying that the Pharisees' whole approach to the law was really anomia. It was lawless or wicked. And I think it's interesting that failure to understand and apply faithfulness can make us faithless and even, even wicked. Verse 29 says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never join them in killing the prophets it's like some self moral rectitude that they like we apply to the past like Well, if if I would have been there, I never would have done that. Like, I surely never would have denied you, Jesus. Not like Peter. I, I never would have betrayed you, like Judas. I wouldn't have doubted like Thomas. Or I surely would have given my life for you, Jesus. I surely would have stood up to Hitler. I surely would have stood up against segregation and Jim Crow laws. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Because your lifestyle, it matches theirs. You're caught up in the same patterns. It's just a different time or a different circumstance. The motivations are still the same. You're just soaked in hypocrisy. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? And that's our question. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Reality is you can't. Sorry. Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion and you will flog others with your whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time. From the murder of righteous Abel, way back in Genesis chapter 4 at the hand of his brother Cain to the murder of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar in 2nd Chronicles 24. And in the Jewish order of books in the Hebrew Bible you've got Genesis at the very beginning and you've got 2nd Chronicles at the very end. So basically Abel was the first righteous person to be murdered and and Zechariah the last. So basically Jesus is saying from A to Z you are guilty. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Reality is, sorry, you can't. Verse 36 says, I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. That means the temple itself will be destroyed. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Reality is you can't. Sorry. The judgment of denying and not accepting who Jesus is, the Son of God who came to show us the way, the truth, and the life, the judgment or result, or the outcome, is like a ravine for burning trash. A place empty of void, and void of beauty and life. A place where God is not. But the truth is, it's like in their walks of life these religious leaders are already living in it, at least somewhat. The mode of operation for these religious leaders has been to see the world in a particular way. A closed fashion of sinking into the quicksand of vain motivations and flighty pursuits, the intangible and meaningless attempts at prestige and status. Justice and mercy and faith are absent from their pure view, just as, as God is absent from their lifestyles. It's all hypocrisy and greed and self indulgence. Their righteousness, it smells like a corpse crawling with maggots. And I think it's easy for me to stand downhill, downwind, and to be sick to my stomach at their inconceivable errors and ways. Until I realize that I don't look like a gentle dove, or a fluffy innocent lamb, or a golden retriever puppy. But rather I look and I smell like a corpse crawling with maggots. It's all fun and games until what goes around, comes around, goes around, and comes around to me. But thank Jesus. Jesus isn't nice. He's good. Thank Jesus. Jesus is willing to pull back the covers, to peel back our skin and expose the issues we need to address because He loves us enough. As Jesus has called out the religious leaders and us too with seven emotional outbursts associated with pain or bad news, this is more than a a cheap shot at religious phonies in long robes or Levi's or Lululemon sweatpants. Jesus is proposing here an alternative world. A world seen from the perspective of the kingdom of God. An alternative family where the approval of God removes the heavy yoke of self-justification. He proposes an alternative world where people practice what they teach, where greatness isn't defined by prestige or status, but by servanthood and humility. He proposes a world where the kingdom of heaven is a door open to everyone, where we cross land and sea to make one convert, because it's about loving the world one person at a time and helping that person to grow into twice the child of heaven that we are. He proposes a world where there's no need to swear by this or that. Just tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, even if the truth hurts because silence kills. And sure, money can too. But when we live by this alternative world, we show concern with the small things just as much as with the, with the large things. It's a world that Jesus proposes where we're the same on the inside and the out everywhere we go, where we're honest about who we are. He proposes a world from A to Z where we aren't guilty or abandoned or desolate, but where we're loved and loving. We're forgiven and forgiving. We're received and receiving. A world where after hearing all of this, can we still be friends? It's only possible this alternative world of true reality by the way and the truth and the life that Jesus is. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Reality is, it is only through Jesus. On a Tuesday, I was cooking dinner, and Tara had picked up the kids from her parents, and she was she was driving home, and I, I flipped on the Dodgers, and Max Scherzer had just struck out Bryce Harper for a second time with a, a high cutter, and then all of a sudden, immediately, a, a torrential downpour. The tarps came out on the field and the players sprinted off. And then the, the broadcast was interrupted and it switched over to backstage Dodgers, an inside look at the club. And the person in view was uh, the manager, Dave Roberts, manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And they talked at length about his his sudden and shocking diagnosis with, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Back in two thousand and ten, you know, it looked like his life could be over. It looked like he was he was facing the end, or as we might believe, the beginning. And as I watched, though, there was something that I noticed about this baseball coach in the way that he was speaking and the attitude that he put behind each word. That it, it made me think, like, what what does this dude believe in? Like, how can he say the things that he's saying? Where does he get this sort of resolve and demeanor? And so I went to the most trusted of sources, Wikipedia. And I scrolled down to the bottom most section, personal life. And I was blown away. I mean, sort of, not really. I mean, it makes sense given his resolve and demeanor. I was was shocked. And also at the same time, I wasn't shocked to read the following how Robert spoke of his faith in 2016 by saying, I stopped trying to be good enough and earn my way into heaven and accepted God's gift of eternal life through His Son Jesus Christ in 1988. It wasn't until just a few years ago though that I really understood how much God loved me in sending Jesus to die in my place and really started living for Him, putting Him first in my life, making Him Lord, My relationship with Christ is the most important thing in my life. Beyond the game of baseball, He gives me lasting joy, contentment, and peace. That's the greatest thing about allowing Jesus to become Lord. He really knows and wants what's best for my life. And I think that's the truest answer to our question of Jesus. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Reality is, it is only through Jesus. And through Jesus, we learn to live for an alternative world where being servant means being greatest, and being humble means being exalted. And that's totally countercultural. That's totally not the way the world works. That's totally the opposite of everything. Yep. And it's worth it. Would you pray with me? God, I ask for forgiveness for the lives that we've lived that are just so messy and so far from you. And and maybe that means religiously messy and far from you. But God, I pray that we would not be like these snakes, like these vipers that you call out in Matthew 23. We know that the only way to uh, be at peace in our lives and in this world and in the life to come is to be to be right with You. And that just simply means to accept what You've done and then in response to live for it. So I pray, God, if someone wants to do that, to accept and live for it, they would just open up their heart, their life, their mind, their soul, their everything to You and say, Jesus, come in. I believe You died on the cross for me and all that terrible stuff, that hypocrisy, that sin, that shame, that guilt. Come into my life. Because you're not a dead God. You rose from the grave, defeating death. Come into my life and be my king. I want to follow you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.